The biggest communication problem is we do not listen to understand. We listen to reply. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, most unthinkable, and most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode of The Jury Room, the decades-old unsolved mystery of an elderly couple cut up in their own refrigerator. This is The Icebox Murders. On June 23, 1965, in Houston, Texas, police responded to a call from a concerned citizen. The citizen, Marvin Martin, was worried about his elderly aunt and uncle. It had been days since he had heard from them, and they weren't answering the phone. When the police arrived at the home of Fred and Edwina Rogers, Their knocks were greeted by an eerie stillness. No one was coming to the door. Out of options, they forced their way into the Texas home. Once inside, the officers discovered food on the dining room table that had been left uneaten. It looked like it had been there for days. Other than that, nothing looked terribly out of the ordinary. The home was cluttered, but Edwina's Nephew Marvin assured the officers that the home always looked that way. There were possible signs of a robbery, some chairs flipped over, a few cleared out drawers, but no sign of forced entry. Frighteningly, Edwina Rogers, 79, and her husband Fred Rogers, 81, were nowhere to be found. That is, until one of the officers opened the refrigerator. At first, he assumed the neatly wrapped stacks of meat belonged to a hog. Then he noticed two heads in the crisper. They belonged to Fred and Edwina. As of today, this case remains unsolved, in court anyway. Most people, including the authorities, suspect that the killings were at the hands of Fred and Edwina's adult son, Charles. He disappeared following the murders and was never seen or heard from since. A variety of conspiracy theorists and citizen detectives have came up with their own ideas what led Charles Rogers to the grisly slayings and dismembering of his parents but no one knows for absolute certain what really happened. Husband and wife forensic accountants Hugh and Martha Gardania dedicated two decades of their lives to solving the so-called icebox murders. In their extensive research, the couple discovered that Charles grew up in an abusive home, suffering terrible abuse at the hands of his parents. According to Martha, Charles' childhood was pretty grim by most acceptable standards. It was a life of alcohol and physical abuse. 
plus emotional abuse. As Charles grew older, he became more and more reclused until he was living the life that looked, from the outside at least, like that of a hermit. He lived in his parents' home well into adulthood and communicated with them only through notes that he would pass under their door. Neighbors who were interviewed following the murders claimed that they had no idea their son was living in their home. Marvin Martin explained to journalists that Charles usually came home late at night after his parents had went to bed and left before they awoke. His parents seldom saw or talked to him. The most Charles and his parents ever really communicated was on the rare occasion when Charles was home and he happened to be playing loud music in his bedroom. In those cases, his mother would hit the ceiling Charles floor with a broom to get him to turn the music down. That was the extent of their communication. Still, while Charles was certainly a loner, there was another side to the seemingly invisible man. Charles was a brilliant geophysicist who had traveled the world meeting with powerful people. He was able to locate oil and gold for his clients and was revered as having an intelligent and invaluable mind by those who worked with him. Perhaps even more surprising for a supposed recluse, Charles was fluent in seven languages. He had a degree in nuclear physics. In World War II, he served in the Office of Naval Intelligence. After the war, he landed a job as a seismologist for Shell Oil where he made powerful connections around the country and in Central America. The house he lived in with his parents actually belonged to him. The deed was in his name. Bought from the money he had earned as a top seismologist. He even owned his own jet and had a pilot license. Something that came in handy for his consistent business trips. By these accounts, it seems that the young man had lived a great life of success. In the 1950s, Charles unexpectedly quit his job at Shell Oil. He had recently joined the Civil Air Patrol, where he is said to have met David Ferry, one of the men involved in John F. Kennedy's assassination. In 1992, John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers investigated the Icebox murders for their book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll. This book published a conspiracy theory. Charles was actually a CIA agent who was one of the shooters in President Kennedy's assassination. They theorized that Charles committed the slings of his parents because they learned about Charles' secret identity. After he killed them, he fled to Guatemala. This theory, though, is not backed up by any real sources and therefore not taken seriously by most crime researchers. Still, it's fascinating to think that the murder of an elderly couple may have been part of a much larger 
crazier government conspiracy. Regardless of whether or not Charles was in the CIA, the years after he quit the Shell Oil remain a mystery. Charles lived with his parents at the time, but saw them even less than when he had a job. He continued to sneak out early in the morning and arrive home late into the night. No one exactly knows how he spent his days, what he was doing or planning for. Regardless of whether or not Charles was a member of the CIA, one thing was certain. His life with his parents was no fairy tale. While Charles was the owner of the house he shared with Edwina and Fred, Edwina often forged Charles' signature to take out loans on the home, which she would then pocket. She also told her friends and family that she was the owner of the house, not Charles, which was a blatant lie that undermined her son's success. Charles, 81-year-old father, was bedridden by this point in his life, and it is believed that Charles was annoyed by the constant attention and pity the old man required. Charles had no empathy for his father's situation. As Charles' bitter hatred towards his abusive parents grew stronger, it's reasonable to think that he wanted to cut them out of his life entirely. The only question was how to perform this terrible act without leaving a trace. After months of meticulous planning, Charles murdered his parents on Father's Day. It is theorized by Hugh and Martha that he called his mother up to his room. When she opened the bedroom door, he shot her in the head. He then made his way into his father's room. He pulled 81-year-old Fred from his bed and proceeded to bludgeon him with a hammer, beating him to death. He then gouged out his eyes. After murdering his parents, he dragged their bodies to the bathroom, where he cut them up and drained their blood. Each cut was smaller than a human joint. His work was so expertly done that officers believed he must have had a complex anatomical knowledge. When he was finished, he pushed some chairs down and rummaged through some drawers to stage a robbery. He then slipped out of a bedroom window. While Charles seemed to have vanished without a trace, a person who looked remarkably like the geophysicist was seen entering an office building the day after the murders, two days before the bodies were discovered. Newspapers reported that the man seemed nervous or slightly off. He claimed to be a welder who was hoping to apply for work overseas. He introduced himself as Anthony Pitts. Upon further investigation, it was discovered that Charles Rogers' girlfriend worked in the same office building. It is believed that during this visit, she snuck Charles the keys to a getaway car. Martha and Hugh believe that Charles then drove the car straight to Mexico and to freedom. Charles, of course, had connections in Mexico and Central America. The theory is that he was able to flee Mexico for Honduras, 
where he worked as a miner until he died. If he were alive today, he would be over 100 years old. While the police were never able to find any real evidence tying Charles to the crime, it is widely believed that he was the one who committed the heinous murders of his mother and father. Still, this case remains unsolved. So theories can only be read as theories until a court makes a concrete decision. It is more likely though that this case will remain forever unsolved and whoever did commit the grisly murders lived the rest of his days as a killer on the loose. Hi, my name's Hannah and I'm the host of the Murder Bucket Podcast where I talk about murder, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnapping, and weird stuff. I have new episodes come out every Monday so be sure to follow me on social media. Facebook at BucketMurd, Instagram at MurdBucket, and Twitter at The Murder Bucket. This next case comes from the suitcase detective. Now it's a missing persons case. Teresa Dean. She was last seen in Georgia in 1999 around Lawrence Drive in Macon. She's still missing to this day. Now, Teresa was a friendly little girl, once described by her mother as everyone's best friend. She often ran in and out of her home amidst playing around the neighborhood and visiting her friends. She was walking around Lawrence Drive around 4 p.m. by her family when she disappeared. She was meant to be visiting puppies at a neighbor's home and then heading to a friend's, but she disappeared along the way. Family expected her to return home around 9.30 p.m., but became concerned when she did not arrive. Her disappearance was reported to a police by a relative around 11 p.m. So, she went missing or she left her house around 4 p.m., She was supposed to return at 9.30, and they didn't, and they called the police at 11 o'clock at night. So it's not too terrible of a timeline. We've definitely seen worse cases. Some sources say she was last seen around 8 p.m., while other sources say she was last seen around 4 p.m. It seems like her family last saw her around 4 p.m., while neighbors reported seeing her late as 8 p.m. So definitely... A lot of different eyewitnesses accounts. So there were police from three counties that searched several miles of forested land in the nearby Kowlin mining pits, but nothing was ever recovered. There have been no significant suspects in her disappearance, but although her mother's ex-fiance Cody Landers was problematic, He lived with the family in 99, but was found guilty of seven counts of child molestation in 2000. So, she had a pedophile living with her, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that she was being sexually molested at home, which is a terrible thing. And in August of 1999, he and her mother, 
Dorothy Dean had both refused to take a lie detector test, and police never listed him as a formal suspect. Now that's fucking frustrating. How could they not want to take a lie detector test to help find their daughter? If they had nothing to hide or nothing to do with it, there's no reason for them not to take a lie detector test. Now, in a strange turn of events, there was also three other girls, I'm sorry, four other girls, so a total of four girls missing around the same time but years apart. So you have Heaven, Tabitha, Teresa, and Shannon all missing around the same time, years apart, one in Tennessee and the other the other three in Georgia. So the similarities between these. So you have Teresa, Shannon, and Heaven. They were all 11 when they went missing, and Tabitha was 13. They were all females. So Teresa, Shannon, and Heaven were taken from the trailer parks where they lived. Tabitha does not fit, as that she did not live in a trailer park. They were taken, all taken two years apart. So Teresa, Shannon, and Heaven were all taken in mid-August, almost exactly two years apart. Teresa went missing in August 15, 1999. Shannon went missing August 16, 2001. And Heaven went missing in August 19th, 2003. Tabitha, who is, does not really fit the similarities, went missing in April 29th, 2003. They were all walking alone, while Teresa, Shannon, and Heaven all had commercial construction going on near the path they walked. Tabitha and Heaven were headed towards the bus stop for school. So the key descriptors of Teresa Dean... Her date of birth was September 20th, 1987. She was 11 years old at her time of disappearance. She was a Caucasian American female. She had short brown hair, blue eyes. She was 4'10 and only weighed 75 pounds. Now she had her ears pierced. She had a speech impediment, maybe in need of medical attention for undisclosed reasons at her time of disappearance. She was wearing a short sleeve button-down shirt, blue and white stripes, orange rust knit pants, clear gel sandals, and gold ball earrings. If you or anyone you know has information about the disappearances, please contact the FBI or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-TIPS. 8477. You can also contact the Georgia State Police at 912 745 1271. Now, I know it's been, you know, a couple of decades since she went missing, but hopefully she'll be found so we can bring her family some answers, some closure. That way they can hopefully move on with their lives. Now I'm going to link to the suitcase detective below. Make sure you go check them out. They have a great website. Their website includes film reviews, true crime, missing, 
I mean, they have a ton of content on there that you guys can go and check out. Make sure you tell them I sent you. But hopefully, hopefully we can bring answers for Teresa's case. Hi guys, Kira from Murder and More here. I am the solo host of the True Crime Podcast, where every other Sunday I tell you about a murder, serial killer or missing person. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More. Instagram at Murder and More Pod and Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to www.murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. Now this next story comes from Lolly's True Crime World. It's a United Kingdom true crime blog. Go check her out. Great writing. Interesting point of views. Now this blog post is about an unsolved murder that happened in 1976. Esther Soper. Now, this case was originally investigated in 1976. The investigation lasted seven long months. There were at least 80 officers involved from the Devon and Cornwall police. But this case remains unsolved to this day. One of the strange things about this case, there have been no arrests, not even a suspect for committing this heinous crime. Mrs. Soper was 51 at the time of her murder. She was a widow, a mother, and a grandmother. Esther had been a widow for two to three years. Her husband had died at a young age. He had worked in the shipyard in Devonport, which is unrelated to his death. Her religious beliefs kept her away from her local community. She had a very deep dedication for her church. She attended the exclusive Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. She was murdered on January 1st, 1976. An interesting thing about this case, Esther was estranged from her father for at least 15 years. They became estranged once her mother died and he remarried. Now, the local newspaper had interviewed her father. Stanley Copeland was quoted as saying, he could not understand why anybody would want to kill his daughter. She was a lovely person. There's been a lot of misinformation about this case. They reported that she had moved to Mutley Plain, Plymouth after her husband had died. But they also reported that she had joined the exclusive Plymouth Brethren Christian Church after Norman's death. But they both had been longtime members of the church. 
so more than likely they were wrong about her moving to Muttley Plain after his death. So it is not surprising at all that there are a lot of inaccuracy and this case remains unsolved. As some of you may know, the exclusive brethren Plymouth Christian Church are close-knit, are close-knit. They are mostly born into the church from brethren families, with only very few members joining from the outside world. I believe that was not always the case, and some did join years back, but I can't see how it would be possible with the huge changes a member joining would have to make. What is weird about this? The church did not allow its members to live alone, especially women. It is likely that this case caused the church to change its rules for its members. Now, we're going to get to the murder. Obviously, this murder completely shocked the people of Plymouth, Devon. This sent a considerable shockwave through the EBCC. It is still hard to believe that there was no explanation then and now about the brutal murder of this Christian lady who lived an incredibly quiet life. She attended church meetings almost daily. And now there is potentially a killer who has been walking around free for 44 years. Esther was beaten with the heavy cider bottle, then strangled with her own tights. From the police accounts, this attack was extremely brutal and frenzied. There was also reports of her house being ransacked, potentially a burglary that went wrong. Was this ransacking saged? There would not be much to steal. Members of the church were not allowed to own any kind of electronics. There was never any record of any property being taken. Was this a crime of opportunity? Was it someone she knew? Now, there were no reports of forced entry. She did not put up a fight. The body was also found to be wrapped in a curtain despite being completely dressed. Now, a point of view from a criminologist. The murderer may have felt some remorse after the killing, embarrassed, a sense of shame maybe. So he or she grabbed the curtains, wrapped the body up to hide her away. In a sense, could not see her or see what he or she had done. So in his or her mind, had not done it. Now, as far as the strangulation with the tights, a view from a cr criminologist. Although there seemed to be no report of sexual assault, the assailant could have derived great sexual pleasure from the act of strangulation itself, especially using the female undergarments. Maybe in the killer's childhood, he or she may have been belittled by the mother and this act was a way to take back the power hence the reason to kill using the heavy bottle first now if anybody has any information on this they can call the crime stoppers 0800 
555-555-111 or contact them in online in absolute confidentiality. Now, in my opinion, I feel like this church that she was a part of, I feel like it was kind of a cult, more of a, uh, I guess, a Jehovah Witnesses kind of thing where there's, you know, a lot of rules, a lot of structure, a lot of ways that to keep people, you know, in line, that they don't get out of control. I don't know who committed the crime. Never, I'd never even heard of this crime. So thank you, Lolly, for sharing this with the world. Now, I do believe that it was a crime of opportunity. She lived alone. There wasn't a whole lot of people around or a whole lot of people that were looking for her. It was She was said to have kind of be estranged from the community because of her religious beliefs. So with the nature of the brutality of this case, there were definitely some emotions involved. There's no way that you beat somebody with a heavy cider bottle just because, you know, just because, and then strangle them with, you know, their own clothes. That's, that's definitely emotions there. But hopefully someday they can bring answers for this unsolved case. And as always, please go check out the blog. There are a lot more opinions in the blog and go show Lolly some love. Now, I did not share the whole blog in an effort to bring some attention to her website. So I will link to this blog article and her website down below. Please just go and check it out. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night, so watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of The Jury Room. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's been quite a roller coaster, a lot of unanswered questions in all the cases that I covered today. So with that being said, I'd like to take a moment of silence for all of the victims. Now I would also like to give a shout out to the Murder Bucket Podcast and Murder and More for being on the show today. Don't forget, there will be links to the for the episode down below, a feedback link, general case suggestion, missing person cases, all that good jazz will all be linked down below. Now I am trying to 
get myself on iHeartRadio, Stitcher. I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting on there, but I'll get on there. But please make sure you go leave a review on Apple. Let me know how I'm doing. It just helps out everybody. Again, shout out to all of the content creators out there. We appreciate each and every one of you. And as always, thanks for listening.